Dizza Bulletin, in association with WFHB News, presents Lawyers, Schools, and Access, the history of special education in the United States. I'm Abe Shapiro. Tonight's episode, The Rise and Temporary Fall of Special Education in Washington State. When we left off, we had just finished discussing the 1951 founding of the Ark of the United States as a voice for the rights of individuals with disabilities. We also covered its humble beginnings as the Children's Benevolent League, or CBL, in Washington in the year 1935, and how it grew to become one of the first disability rights organizations dedicated to campaigning for special education in the state of Washington and across the country. But to understand its later contributions on the national level, we must go back in time once more to understand the historical context of special education prior to and as the ARC was maturing prior to its 1951 incorporation as a civil rights organization. As mentioned previously, Washington State had made significant policy breakthroughs in special education and in education itself. In its 1889 state constitution, it read, quote, education is the paramount duty of the state, end quote. A year later, in 1890, the Washington State Legislature passed a bill requiring parents to register any child with a disability for school, while local school districts were required to report to local school superintendents, quote, all feeble-minded children between the ages of 6 and 21 under penalty of fine, end quote. The term feeble-minded was not well-defined in the bill which left interpretation up to local school districts. Parents themselves who didn't send their disabled children to school would face a fine of up to $200, with an exception provided if the county school district determined the child was receiving an adequate education in the local school districts, in which case the child would not need to go to a state institution and the parents would not have to forfeit $200. But continued monitoring of the child was required. The bill also implied that some, but not all, children could be educated. And yet, progress by Washington State in the field of education, particularly special education, continued to be made. Early special education in the state began with the first class for mentally deficient children being established in 1909 at the Waquiam Public Schools. Bill Dusso, historian to the Washington Arc, describes how this expansion of special education eventually made its way to the institution's housing children who otherwise would not have qualified for such programming in 1916. Services for individuals with disability historically were based on an institutional model. Um, oftentimes, uh, the institutions were, for example, former tuberculosis hospitals or places out in the country where um, we could put those individuals sort of out of sight, out of mind. We didn't have to think about them. And they became uh, places where nepotism ruled and uh, families served uh, those organizations uh, and served as employees for those institutions through generations. And the generations became supportive of the institution because it was how the family made their living uh, out in the country in those institutions. So they self-sustained one another. And that was the principal model of service in the state of Washington. There were a few uh, occasional places in public education, usually where there was a personal relationship between a teacher 
Um, I give you an example of the Baker family, uh, a family that lived out in a very rural area outside of King County called Issaquah, which now happens to be the primary district for Microsoft families in the state. So quite a wealthy district now. But then they lived on, they moved out of Seattle in 1911 because Minnie Baker, the mother of Edward, was a school teacher and she couldn't bring Edward, then six years old, to the Seattle School District, even to bring her him into her class. So Minnie and her husband simply packed up out of Seattle, moved out to this very rural area and started their own school district a two-room school in the country that became the Issaquah School District. And Minnie brought Edward to school every day. To my knowledge, in the 19-teens, that was the first special education program in the state of Washington, Edward Baker's class in Issaquah. Part of the success for this rapid development was an efficient state funding formula devised that same year of 1909 in which school districts that taught disabled children would receive five times the amount as that for regular students in public school. For example, in Tacoma, when compared to eight cents to educate each normal child, each disabled child would cost 40 cents to educate, half of which was contributed to by the state government. For all of its promises, however, this funding formula was never matched. Due to the Great Depression, tax revenue, and Therefore, special education funds declined, a trend which increased in prominence prior to and at the height of World War II, with the Washington state government slashing the budget for special education from its original five times to two times the price of educating normal students. So that by the middle of World War II in 1943, funds were being redirected away from special education and towards the war effort leading to the closure of several special education classes and a shortage of special education instructors. What's more, the policy of exclusion was also on the rise. By the mid-1920s, school districts across the country began to use new intelligence tests to formulate cutoff points below which children with disabilities could be excluded. Typically, that score was an IQ score below 50. In Seattle, this became the case. In a number of cases, the parents were left with no option other than to institutionalize their children, with over 128 of those students debarred from schools. But most parents refused to send their children away. On January the 16th, 1917, seven Seattle school children were nearly expelled from the school district after being declared uneducable. And with those parents threatening legal action, the Seattle School Board formally adopted an exclusionary policy in which a child below the IQ of 50 would be barred or expelled, that is, if Ira Brown, the school district physician and Seattle Public School Director for Special Education Programs Nellie Goodhue determined that such a child was uneducable. Dr. Brown was adamant on excluding, quote, all idiots and imbeciles, end quote, whom he believed belonged in institutions. And eventually, Seattle decided to exclude those with IQs below 50. On the other hand, Nellie Goodhue asked Superintendent Frank Cooper what policy she should adopt toward, quote, imbeciles or children who are not educable 
but might be trained to do things acceptably, end quote. And yet, in spite of this new policy, children with profound disabilities were being educated in other state systems. A number of districts did reveal children between a 50 to 70 IQ score were in schools, with a 1922 study of Tacoma special rooms, quote-unquote, showing 79 people who were given the IQ tests, with nine having IQ scores between 40 to 55, 30 with an IQ of 55 to 70, and 40 with an IQ above 70. In 1943, with a budget of special education in the state having been slashed considerably, a division of handicapped children was created within the office of the Washington state government. That is, the office of the state's superintendent. A supervisor was hired to create handicap programs in various districts. The act that created this division continued to exclude children with disabilities, the motive of which is unknown, but resulted in parents having to start from scratch. With new parental advocacy in 1947, Washington State Legislature authorized boarding schools, special day school classes, and other programs for cerebral palsy individuals who couldn't assimilate into public schools. Two years later, in 1949, preschool programs were authorized for most handicapped children. But unfortunately, this law built on the 1943 and 1947 acts by excluding mentally deficient children. In other words, the preschool was for children whose learning was temporarily or permanently limited due to hearing issues, speech issues, sight issues, cerebral palsy, or other physical handicaps. Next week, we travel back to 1951, where, shortly after its founding, the Ark of the United States now began its battle for the special education of its own children and those of the future and beyond. Source material comes to us from Doing Disability Justice, a 2010 book on the founding of the Ark of the United States by the late Larry A. Jones, the organization's president from 1981 to 1983. Also, special thanks goes to Stacy Dim, the CEO of the Ark of Washington, and Bill Dussault, the Washington Ark historian. Until next time, Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.